Welcome to the Everlasting Education Podcast, the best of education through a gentle contempt for education. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year to you, Scott. So uh, are you the gentle one and I'm the contemptuous one? Explain this gentle contempt for education tagline of ours. (laughs) Yeah, so this comes from a quote, uh, Chesterton quote, right? Uh, Where Chesterton said, in order to have the best of education, there needs to be a gentle contempt for education. In other words, we don't want to make it in any kind of an idol. Right. We're really glad, y'all, that you have been tuning in over the past few weeks and months as the Consortium podcast is still going on, and we've sort of changed emphasis with that, and and as we've started the Everlasting podcast, and this is really the one where you and I uh, let to get to let our hair down. Yeah, this is a fun podcast. We uh, are going to be tackling, continuing to tackle, as we introduced last year, Norms and Nobility uh, by David Hicks. And in this podcast, we're just going to unpack uh, parts of chapters and whole chapters at a time. And we, we sort of want to build a library of um you know, a discussion around this book, but then also, of course, bringing in a bunch of good ideas that come along with it from other sources. <laughs> yeah, you know, our, our show prep is uh, is full of philosophers so-and-so and theologians such-and-such, and it's inspired a lot of, of thought and, and conversation between the two of us. And, of course, we're going to want to bring that into the show and, and, and to all of you all. And so we'd love to get emails from you guys, comments from you guys. Well, yeah. well what, what sort of stuff does this uh, – what what – creativity, imagination, and perplexity, does it provoke in your mind? And there's enough content that it should provoke a lot. Oh, yeah. So we spent an entire episode on the prologue to David Hicks' Norms and Nobility. And then, you know, so today we're going to dedicate ourselves to chapter one. Chapter one's titled, The Virtue is the Fruit of Learning. And so uh, one of the interesting things that I thought uh, where Hicks starts this um, this chapter is the epithet <laughs> to be at the yes. very beginning here uh, from John Bunyan. Do you want to read that for us? Yeah. I come from the town of stupidity. It lieth about four degrees beyond the city of destruction. <laughs> I, f- I feel like that's where we live. Yeah. Right? Well, you, know, you may not recall, but that's actually, we, 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 we came to this epigraph at the end of the last episode ah, yes. as we were, we were in. Okay. Well, we've looked at the prologue and well, let's take a little peek at what chapter one uh, will bring us. So yeah, I come from the town of stupidity. It lieth about four degrees beyond the city of destruction. And one of the the themes that will be emerging through this chapter and through this book, honestly, and this would not be the word that Hicks would use, but it's just being awake. Mm-hmm. But not woke. <laughs> oh, wow. <Yeah. laughs> awake, but not woke. Yeah. Awake, but not woke. <laughs> So he begins by uh, talking about some misconceptions of classical education. And this is one of the questions that I get a lot. I don't know if you get this question a lot, but where did we change? Where, when did classical education go away? How did we lose it? If it's so valuable of a treasure, how did we lose it? Right. And when people ask that question, though, they, they and uh, often every side of the conversation, they all have a certain thing in mind. And the thing that they're thinking of is not actually what classical education is. Yeah. What they're thinking of is Victorian Edwardian education, which which was classical, but that's not everything that classical education had to be. Right. It 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 obviously employed some uh, 
you know, some parts of classical education, but it was geared uh, in a very specific way. It was geared toward the aristocratic elite education of the Victorian period, all of, you know, you know the, the social classes of England. Yes. And very cautiously. I yeah. mean, you know, it's the, the, the line about Waterloo being, being one of the playing fields of Eton. Yeah. You know, it's so, you know, the, at the, when the, 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 the Brits took their second crack at empire <laughs> and, and part of that, that empire, like it was maintained by their public schools as they were called. That's it. Right. That, yep. And, and it was, you know, I, I, I don't think we, I, I certainly would not try to deny that it was classical education, but it was an education for the elites and the bureaucracy of empire that happened to be classical. That happened, right. yes. <laughs> well, and what's so ironic about it is the progressives who pushed back against this and wanted to bring the education for everyone, wanted to democratize it, actually ended up producing a kind of education that was for just a different regime. So where the English were, right. you know, focused at their uh, aristocratic, you know, society, they just focused at a more democratic, you know, uh, society. Yes, and you know, I, I think if, if if we look at you know the the Second British Empire, if we look at the Victorian period, uh, the the English and the Brits, they, they certainly, they, they led the world in scientific inquiry. Yeah. And inquiry is one of the, you know, the most foundational things to education and to classical education. And Hicks unpacks that a little bit uh, in this chapter. But I think that's also where, you know, th- that's where you would hang your hat if you were, were trying to argue that Victorian and Edwardian education were not classical uh, because it this is education made to reinforce a particular system as opposed to uh, to make better human beings right, right? Exactly. and that's what the 20th century had and that's what we have today where we're, we're having to fight back against really what have been various systems of education for power's sake right that, making people cogs that's well that's exactly what it is it's just shifting in regime and so just for our listeners if you if you really stop and think about it for just a moment the regimes can be broken down really into just three or some hybrids of them right you have the monarchy which is the rule of one over the many usually for the benefit of the many once it shifts for the benefit of the one it becomes a tyranny but then you have the aristocracy which is the rule of the few um, over the many for the benefit of the many but usually that falls into oligarchy which is then the rule of the few for their own benefit right Uh, the wealthy and and, uh, aristocratic class and then the polity which is the rule of everyone uh, over their you know themselves but then it shifts to a democracy once it becomes the rule uh, of oneself according to our baser passions yeah I think this is this is an area that Hicks work could really be developed more. One of the things that's interesting about Hicks in this book is that it does have a societal um, emphasis, yeah. right? The benefit that, that education does for society and what society wide education looks like. Uh, but there's, there's not a whole lot of, well, what would bind that society together? And I, I do think, and I wonder what you would, would say yeah. to this. I think it's important for Christians and Christians are people of covenant. People are uh, Christians are people of communion. We have the Holy spirit. Yes. So you and I are brothers, even though we're quite different people, mm-hmm. right? And then we have a very real connection and yet education must be individual. Sure. It, it has to be, um, so, so that's an interesting tension, and even the 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 title of this chapter, right? Virtue is the fruit of learning. 
virtue has to exist in, in context. Right? Well, yes, exactly. And this is this is what I think Hicks' big thesis is, is that if we're not careful, we're just going to default, depending on which regime we're part of, we're going to def- default to a kind of education that serves the you know societal norms versus uh, serving something that is bigger, which you, you mentioned humanity right. earlier. And, and so the pursuit of virtue. Right. So you know, really what we're looking at is, are we talking about education that serves society or are we talking about education that benefits society yeah there you right? go because if, if we're educating humans to be more fully human then the world will be better right in the name of jesus yes well and i think that's another important distinction you started to touch on was you know when we think of classical christian education or even liberal arts education we have in mind that there is a particular regime that we want to raise our kids up unto Mm -hmm. and it's none of the others that we just mentioned (laughs) it's you know it's it's christ's regime so he mentions here that um there's some misconceptions obviously about how education emerges and there's a quote here he says uh the century's growing uh class consciousness and emerging ideological creeds the failure of its classicist to teach normatively and the state's waking involvement in education. All of these blurred society's vision of what classical education should have been or what it could have been. Right. In the broader context of this text, because really what we're doing, y'all, in this in in the, these uh, in these particular episodes is just is just going into the text of David Hicks. <laughs> um, but really, in the in the in the broader context of this, it's like why do people think classical education is for snobs? Yes, is for the elites. Yeah. Right. Because it serves a particular power structure, or or that's the perception that it's serving a, a power structure. But as you mentioned, if it is directed in the right way toward virtue, then it is serving humanity as a whole, right? So that's that's the goal here that Hicks is going to try to unpack and show us. And he has a great line here: to the extent that the Victorian schoolmaster perverted classical learning, and the progressive educator ignored it, <laughs> our modern schools have suffered. Yes. And that's such such a great line because I, I think there are a lot of education, Christian education reformers, who are well aware is it's glaringly obvious so look around us and we can even see some of the roots of that uh dewey and and other other men who just wow they they really wrecked this whole thing in, yep. in their godlessness okay but they don't see that the modern project the modernist project that preceded the progressivists was also broken. Yes, exactly. That that's that's and, and Hicks touches that there, because what happens is there's a shift, and and what he picks up on is this shift from inquiry, and then also judgment in aesthetics and ethics, um, which was part of the pursuit of virtue, to you know more of the modernist enterprise of observation or the you know the the um, scientific method. So reducing education to those things right. is is a a distortion of education, and that's what it had become before it became progressive. It yeah. had already become modern in that sense. Absolutely. Even though they taught Latin and some Greek and things right. like that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it really, I mean, it, it led to so many things untethered from reality because they were untethered from God. Yeah. Now, you know, Hicks, uh, he talks here in, in uh, you know, as we go a little further into the chapter about inquiry, uh, and he says that everything springs from the special nature of the inquiry. The inquiry dictates the form of instruction and establishes the moral framework, the moral framework mm. for thought and action. That's what's important. 
And then he says the classical inquiry possesses three essential attributes. The first is general curiosity. The second is responding to the questions asked by forming imaginative hypotheses. And then the third one is completing the inquiry by devising methods for testing the hypotheses. Yes, exactly. So this he, he's ultimately saying, if we were to bring the you know jelly down to the bottom shelf, <laughs> what he's ultimately saying is asking questions and then pursuing those questions, and really nothing relevant is off limits. So the question that the little child asked, why is the sky blue, is a perfectly relevant question to understanding reality. What if I were to say to you, that's not classical education, you're just uh, wrapping the scientific method in sweeter linens. <laughs> I don't know what a sweeter yeah, linen is. What? <laughs> Dressing it up a little bit. Well, I think the scientific method is part of inquiry, all right, but it's only one part. And the problem with the scientific method is it reduces all inquiry to the materialist, right? It's not imaginative. Right. That's the key word that Dix uses. Yes. It it doesn't get us out into things that are transcendent, into the metaphysical. It just takes us to what we can actually, uh, with our senses, we can, you know, interact with. And so that's where it limits and it makes things like, um, you know, we talked before about the is and the ought in the, in the last episode, but it makes things like aesthetics and ethics off limits because it, this isn't about what is good or what is, you know, good and bad or right and wrong. This just is about what it is. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that another thing that sort of rears its head is, is, is a love or the, the lack of love right. um, because, you know, curiosity without love i have difficulty imagining it maybe it's just my own limitations but i have difficulty imagining it as being anything more than idle curiosity Mm -hmm. right it takes love love for creation love for the maker to ask real questions why did he do it this way right right um otherwise you know if, if, if it's all meaningless then you know, it's, it's just, it's just me tickling my own brain. It's like trivia or idle curiosity, right. as you mentioned, right? There's, there's no real pursuit there. So, so this in, in order, what I'm hearing you say then is in order for there to be a true curiosity that leads toward the inquiry that he mentions, and we'll unpack inquiry here a little bit further, but there has to be the right kind of love. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, love, love for, love for God, love for creation, love for knowledge, love for humanity. Mm-hmm. And, and no one ever talks about love in, you know, in modern and, and, and postmodern times. Uh, what people want to talk about are, they want to be practical yeah. when they want to talk about, you know, Malthusian things. You so know, how many mouths can we feed? <laughs> and they want to reduce happiness to, to that. Yes. So, so here's a question for you and, and, and to kind of, you know, push this into the corners a little bit. What about inordinate love? Um, is classical education, I mean, is, is it okay then? Uh, does, is it accepting of that or does classical education do something else with our loves besides, you know, if they're inordinate or, or distorted? Well, I think that's when we start to, to enter the the, the the well, we we talk about classical Christian education, yeah, right, and so then the, I think we start to immediately get into well, classical or Christian? Well, yes, yes, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, because of course anything anything without God, any love 
without the maker is going to be inordinate. Sure. Right. Any desire is going to be concupiscence. Yeah. Is a word I enjoy using. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, that, you know, that, that's, uh, that, that's un- unavoidable. Um, well, I was going to, yeah, I, I think you're exactly right when we look through the, the Christian lens. And Christianity gives us a standard by which to measure our loves or to direct our loves, right? But I think even before that, when you look at Cicero or, or even some of the Stoics, um, Aurelius and, and things, they they were pursuing, you know, without a Christian vision, they were pursuing the right ordering of loves. And right. malformed as it was, the goal, you know, uh, in, in short as it, as it came— the goal was that human beings needed to order their loves. There was a such yes. a, such a thing. Well, you know, and that, that, that brings to mind people like, like C.S. Lewis or like uh, Rosenstock Wesse uh, and it was just Augustine. Yep. But, you know, you know, speaking of, of, of being ordinate of, and then of, of going back to Cicero and even, even beyond him, I mean, it was, it's because of you really that, that I was able to, to grasp that, that not and it, it it's <laughs> it it seems elementary now just one of those things that you just uh, someone else has to say it to get that slant wise uh, perspective but knowledge as well, almost as process right yes. knowledge not as data that brings balance immediately. Absolutely. Right? And maybe it you does. could unpack that a little bit. Enlighten the masses as you enlightened me. That was really <laughs> insightful I thought. <laughs> well, I I think what's what's you know, what's interesting and how it ties it back to our, our loves is that a classical education with the right curiosity and the right kind of direction, the right kind of mentor helping unpack the questions and guide the questions, that knowledge and education actually become, as you said, the process itself rather than the achievement of that knowledge. So you we may not even get to the end or or even come to the a conclusion of what it is. Now Christianity definitely gives us some answers. Um, you know the primary to, to the the perennial primary questions, right? right? But the process itself then begins to create categories of thought worth thinking of and judging and and in considering. And this is why Socrates was often you know he was criticized because he'd walk around as the called the gadfly of Athens, asking questions, and they would say, "Well, you're always asking questions, but when we ask you, you won't give us an answer. All you do is just keep on get you know giving right. questions." And he said, "Well, I'm a midwife, and and a midwife helps deliver." you know, from the person, I can't give you a baby. You've got to deliver that baby. And, and meaning that the education itself is, as you mentioned, the process and it, it, it gets us thinking, it gets us thinking in the right direction and a good teacher that can lead a Socratic discussion will get students going in the right direction, which also is an implication to say that there's a right direction in ordering our loves and ordering our thinking. Right. And I don't want to get too lost into, into linguistic weirdnesses, uh, but English is actually a, a bit unusual mm-hmm. uh, for being a language that just has one word for knowledge, for knowing. Ah, uh, yeah. Right. Um, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, Greek is one that had more than one. Um, but you know, you know, very often, you know, a lot of languages have words that separate knowing data, knowing yep. thingies. Yep. And <laughs> relationally knowing, knowing in a handling in a yes. in a 
in an experience sort of way. Sure. Right? That's like a basic fundamental, like, of course, we have these two words for a lot of languages. And English doesn't have it, and that's okay, but we should at least be able to, to handle those notions. Yeah, we should have categories of thought to recognize that's true. We, we do that same thing with, we're just talking about love. You know, I love my wife and I love right. pizza, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, and, and, and hopefully people recognize that there is, you know, we mean something different when we use that same word. But both we mean passionately. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, skipping a little bit ahead, we'll probably go back uh, in this chapter. Uh, virtue is the fruit of learning, but skipping a little ahead, uh, Hicks does say, you know, Plato regarded knowledge neither as a possession of something outside the mind, nor as a measurable state of mind, but as a logical process attending the activity of learning. His definition of knowledge as an activity of learning rather than as a condition of having learned is important to the idea of a classical education. Yeah, absolutely. And and he's he's really summing up the chapter with that quote. Um, but as, as we come back um, to what you first brought up, you know, just kind of bringing it full circle, it is the answer to when he says that, you know, classical education is not preeminently of a specific time or place. It stands instead, number one, for a spirit of inquiry, and number two, for a form of instruction concerned with the development of style through language and of conscience through myth. Mm. And and so there those are the two parts of that, you know, we have to be able to form questions, uh, have have a hypothesis about what this might look like, and then what's the method for testing our hypothesis, right? We have to have that simultaneously we we have to be get you know be able to get into the reasonability to think through and in in that process of of thinking through the ideas is what he says the second criterion that urges the students general curiosity to be stimulated and that the curriculum includes those i love this baggy baffling normative questions of style which are aesthetics and and ethics or uh style and in conscience so these slip from the grip of the scientific method. What what he's getting at is the scientific method just really boils it down to something that eliminates or, or puts them outside of the, you know, the boundary, you know, these right. ideas of, of, of ethics and, and aesthetics. But part of a classical education leads us to ask right questions and then to ask questions of, of judgment. And it's honestly, the, and to treat those things as being fundamental, foundational, right? Yep. I mean, it's... Uh, the the world is scared today sure. to to make judgments and and only the most highly qualified the most esoterically trained priests can uh, can pass <laughs> judgments of aesthetic and ethics right you know the rest of us want to stay far far away from them. and in fact if you do pass an aesthetic or ethical judgment then twitter comes for you and right, yeah. right? i mean you will be, it, yeah you'll be canceled petrified of right. this uh, of this and you know hicks isn't just arguing that it's a necessary outcome of education like for him is near the bottom like get your logic going yep right and then like immediately you're you're talking about questions of style and cautious well because when he's talking about normative um one of the the phrases he uses is an allegiance to a pattern of truth right mm -hmm. and and so we live in a culture today that has no allegiance to any pattern of truth right. let alone to any kind of truth um unless it's my truth you know <laughs> you know and your your truth stinks um so it does require us to be able to look at something 
and make a distinction, what Mortimer Adler calls the distinction between truth and taste, right? right. So when, let's say we're looking at a painting. Um, there is something in the truth of the objective beauty of the painting. And if we used, for example, maybe Aquinas's clarity, proportion, and um, what was integrity, mm-hmm. that, you know, those three qualities. So we can judge the truth and fullness of it or the, uh, the objective beauty of it that way. But then there may be a matter of taste. You know, I, I right. prefer landscapes over architecture or something, you know, whatever. That I, actually, I, I, I've always taken exception to the degustibus non disputandum. <laughs> Maybe yeah. we could do yeah, <laughs> yeah. on that. But yeah, you know, I, I think it's really important, you know, for all our all the wokesters listening to okay. us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, to, to, to realize, okay, so we've talked about how uh, the modernist educational system you know, that mm-hmm. which propped up empire. Yep. Um, it was all about power. Yep. Okay. Well, great. I mean, every wokester will, will love that. <laughs> right. But then the progressivist agenda of, we say progressivist, don't think that's today, of the 19th century. Right. right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> it was also all about power. Just a different regime. Yep, yep. Exactly. But so is the woke agenda. Now we're talking about the power of the victim and the martyr. Right. Which any theologian knows is very, very powerful. Perhaps more powerful. And we, we know the martyr is more, more powerful than empire. Yes. That's easy. Right. And don't think there's not any cynicism involved in this. This, yes. this is the postmodern agenda as laid out by philosophers galore. And the, the education is still for the non-Christian, all about power. It, it comes right back down to it. Somehow, I knew we were going to get back to Rene Girard. By the way, this is a, a side note. I, I've, uh, I've brought some, I'm writing my dissertation and bringing some Rene Girard into, mm. um, into that simply because of um, Flannery O'Connor's uh, interaction with Dostoevsky and Dostoevsky's oh, wow. interaction with, or Girard's interaction with Dostoevsky. Anyway, we need to start so, recording twice a week. I know, right? There's so many things to talk about. So sorry for that little rant off to the side, but yeah, education, it has to be about virtue. Um, that is the fruit of learning. It's the process that we go through that leads us in, in that direction. And there's so many other things that we could unpack here and yeah. maybe a, a final thought you want to uh, tackle before we have to end our episode today. Well, you know, really, instead of a final thought, what I'd like to do is get a final reaction. I, ha- I have a quote here Okay, uh, yeah. in, in this chapter you know, from Hicks that, uh, that re- really struck me and I'd like to hear you react to it. Yeah. So here's the quote. Y'all just enjoy this. The theoretic life completes the individual, holding him against the warmth of the divine spark in his nature and making sense of an existence otherwise consumed by the infinite wishing of one thing for the sake of another. Indeed, the theoretic life is the life of virtue, so long as we mean by virtue all that the Greek arete expresses, the life that knows and reveres, speculates and acts upon the good that loves and reproduces the beautiful and that pursues excellence and moderation in all things. I, I, my first reaction would be, I wish that everyone 
pursued that, mm. <laughs> you know, I, I, and, and I think this, this theoretical life, this idea of thinking about things, putting them in categories of thought, you know, Aristotle says that, you know, we all desire to know. And the first reason we know that is because we like to interact with our senses, right? We ask yeah. questions, we, we, we touch things, we want to see things. And, and so it's there, but to be able to then contemplate them, to have the leisure time, to think about them, to it's, it's a privilege and it's, and it's a beautiful thing. And there is a specific delight there is a satisfaction in getting to go through these ideas mm-hmm. and as we do that there's there's so many connections we make to to you know various other ideas and we can't help but making virtuous judgments about what is yes. good and true and beautiful yeah you know awareness meditation science in the sense yep. of the word that you know gave us words like prescience yes right like just knowing yep right uh, is is vital to a, a satisfying life, and that's something like our education is that which prepares us to be content. Yeah, and you know, one of the pieces of advice I've I've probably given out the most, and this this only unpack this only I think opens the door to a part of what Hicks is saying here. But a piece of advice I've I've given out a lot over the years is never do anything that you don't know why you're doing it. Yeah. The ask the why question. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I get a question of oh, family, education, you know, my kids, marriage, blah, blah, blah. Don't do a single thing. You, you can't answer the question. Why? Why? Yeah. You know, and, and, and all that takes is some thought. It takes some meditation, but we have not been trained to examine. Right. Yeah. I, I have two just reactions to that in closing. One is on a personal level. I'll, I'll never forget, um, and I may have even mentioned this on a podcast before, um, my youngest daughter, when she started asking the why mm-hmm. questions, yeah. how, how do we know, you know, do we know, um, how, how do we know that we believe the right thing? And why is it that we do this versus that? And she began to kind of conceptualize, and it just, it was such a beautiful thing that she started, you know, just owning and thinking through these things herself. And I remember as a dad loving that, but I find the same experience when I have students uh, or parents who will email and say, our kids come to the dinner table asking the why questions and Mm -hmm. and wanting to talk about and, and flesh out and think about the things that they've been talking about in class. That's where education is actually happening. Yes. That process is taking place and they are thinking about these. They didn't just get a bunch of data that they weren't interested in, you know, thrown at them. They're actually processing as a human being, these categories of thought and placing value and virtue and merit, you know, uh, at various places on them. That's it, brother. So, well, folks, thanks so much for joining us today and uh, unpacking this first chapter. And really, we just touched the tip of the iceberg. I hope it gives you enough um you know, insight that you want to tackle the book yourself. Right. And you know, our, our, our next Hicks episode, which may not be our next episode, but our next Hicks episode will be on the chapter. The word is truth. And the epigraph there is a Nabokov quote. Oh. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so long everybody. Thanks so much. God bless.